Now, I know I'm talking to just a few of us here of the body of Christ. There will be another group that will come in at 11. We'll speak to them as well. But do you realize there's probably three times your number out online right now listening? We're ministering to a lot of people and uh, for various reasons. We have a couple that we are sharing with right now. And uh, frankly, they're, they're generally not here because they have three boys, three young boys. Nowhere to put them right now because we haven't started the children's ministry back up yet. They came about um, two weeks ago. Husband was working, but the wife came with her three boys, and I just felt so bad for her. She sat next to us. I felt like I needed to sit amongst the boys and be sergeant-at-arms. Uh, she really got very little out of the message, as you can imagine she would. So um, a lot of those people out in TV land, and I speak to you in TV land. Wish I could give you hugs. Well, Scott did a terrific kind of almost summation last week in talking about some of the things in marriage that really is where the rubber meets the road. You talked about conflict management, conflict um, in being able to communicate during conflict. Vicki and I do a lot of that kind of uh, training with people and teaching them how to fight fair. We use a, um, a, a truism kind of in our, in our classes that we teach and counseling that we do that is if you uh, avoid conflict at all costs, the cost will probably be your marriage. So, you know, conflict can be a really good thing. We've taught a lot of these things over the years, and I'm going to share that with you, though I'm hopefully going to share a totally different perspective that we have kind of come into in the last two years of our ministry, and uh, I want to share some of that with you. But, you know, where do we get some of these uh, ideas we have about how to be fulfilled in marriage, how to be happy in marriage? You know, we grew up, we were kids. Um, especially if you were female, you probably had these visions and dreams. You know, you, you could see yourself in the dress. You know, when you were little, you were already trying to plan the dress. You know, you were already trans, you know, plan the event. Most of us as guys, we just, you know, we thought you, we should get attaboys for just showing up. But, you know, women were, you know, they're, they're thinking these things through. You start thinking these things through when you're a kid and you get visions of what happiness and fulfillment looks like in marriage. Movies certainly uh, fit into this category. Um, I have a couple of uh, movie marquees here that, uh, remember this one? Okay, this dates me, but love story. Where do we get these things? So this one had this dopey line, love means never having to say you're sorry. Does that sound biblical to you? Nah, doesn't me either, but you know, we, we hear these things and they become part of us. How about this next movie here? What if someone you never met, someone you never saw, someone you never knew, was the only someone for you? Doesn't that sound like there's only one person that's really designed for me in the entire world, and if I miss him, boy, am I messed up. In fact, Stephen Stills once had sang a song. You know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. <laughs> Definitely not biblical, you know, and, we, and yet we get these things. How about romance novels? Now, I could ask for a show of hands to see who, you know, reads romance novels, but it would embarrass Chad, and so I don't want him to have to raise his hand. But look at, look at these. So I tried to choose some tame covers here. Woo-hoo! Uh, I chose the last one here. Uh, next one. Chose this last one because I want to know who could really catch a woman like this while they're riding a stallion. I just don't get it, you know, how that could happen. Possibly it was our own family experiences. You know, you followed what your mom and dad did or said, what you saw in grandma and grandpa, your aunt and uncle, maybe your siblings, maybe your friends around you, but you had these family experiences. And then, of course, 
Probably some of the most damaging and where we receive most of our lies is in the workplace. You know, guys, you're, maybe you're out in the... Maybe you're out hunting. Maybe yours is around a campfire somewhere and you start sharing stories about what it's like to be a husband, what your rights are as a husband. And you start hearing things from people who are not following Jesus and they'll tell you what they think marriage needs to look like. Maybe it's uh, you as a woman at work and your uh, female colleagues are telling you what you should and shouldn't put up with and how... You know, you are an actualized woman. You should, life should be fair and you ought to do something with this bum that you're with. Um, possibly it's something like this little video clip I want to show you. Golden, do you love me? Do I what? Do you love me? Do I love you? Well. With our daughters getting married and this trouble in the town. You're upset, you're worn out. Go inside, go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Uh, no, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? You're a fool. I know. But do you love me? Do I love you? Well... For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? Golden, the first time I met you was on our wedding day. I was scared. I was shy. I was nervous. So was I. But my father and my mother said we'd learn to love each other. And now I'm asking, Golda, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? Do I love him? Well? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. Twenty-five years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And you love me. I suppose I do. And I suppose I love you, too. It doesn't change a thing. But even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. So that's my grandfather. Uh, in Russia, that is my grandfather in Russia. That's his life. Uh, that's what exactly what he had. Arranged marriages. He uh, actually had an arranged marriage, and it was in another village. Never seen the woman, and so he decided to sneak away and go look at her. He told me he couldn't marry her. She looked like a mule, um, and so <laughs> he had a, he had the matchmaker come up with another marriage, but another wedding. Uh, woman rather, and yet when I was a boy growing up, I watched the two of them as husband and wife, even though they had never known each other before they got together. So what is that all about? 
The divorce rates in this country are uh, really enlightening. Atheists uh, generally have about a 20-25% divorce rate. Um, of course, they also have a lower marriage rate. Um, Christians have almost a 50% divorce rate. That covers all of Christianity. Some of it's higher, some of it's lower. Unfortunately, evangelical Christians is the highest. That's kind of crazy. Something's a little amiss. Um, Orthodox Jews, Tevya and Golda, 1%. 1% divorce rate. Why is that? Well, let's talk a little about it. So the scripture is real clear that we um, are living in two worlds right now. We are living in a kingdom of this world and a kingdom of God, the kingdom of his world. And Jesus spent lots of time talking to his disciples about making sure that they were focusing on one world versus the other. He makes this big thing about, you know, where your treasures are stored. We've talked about that in the past, so we won't bring that up, but... He makes it real clear that, in fact, if we're looking at this world and the next world, that uh, marriage, as wonderful as it is, as we're going to talk about this morning, doesn't follow us into the next world, which is kind of an interesting thing, that there's no marriage in heaven. But there is marriage in heaven, (laughs) and it's called between the bride, which is us, the church, and the groom, our Lord Jesus. And I probably know marriage in heaven because that marriage supersedes everything else. Everything else becomes dull in comparison. But because there's this battle between where we live and where, where God's kingdom exists, we're always, in all areas of our life, we're always being challenged with fractional thinking, errors. And so whether it's how we spend our money, whether it's how we spend our time, whether it's, you know, who we're with or whatever, we will always be attempted to be distracted and focused solely upon the kingdom of this world as if it's going to last forever rather than the kingdom of heaven which will last forever. This falls into our marriage, certainly. We... uh, we begin to pick up attitudes from the world, the kingdom of this world, and we bring them into our marriage. So in the kingdom of this world, we're told to be self-actualized, self-aware. We're supposed to be spending a lot of time trying to make sure we have self-esteem. We try to instill self-esteem in our children, and what we find is that all of those self-centered focus ideas eventually lead to selfishness. And be real clear about this, marriages are destroyed by selfishness. The kingdom of God, on the flip side, teaches selflessness, considering the needs of others above ourselves. However, it doesn't do us any good to simply try to suppress this narcissistic um, view we have of life, that everything revolves around us and kind of somehow abstain from that, we have to do something more. We have to change our focus. We have to look at something else. So I would suggest this morning that what we're needing to do is refocus on our priorities. So I've used this list in the past where we talk about the priorities of our life. We might put them down like this, I'm, and we're, we're, we'd be pretty, feeling pretty good about ourselves and saying, 
God is our first focus, certainly. But then we have spouse, children, family, friends, work, church service, possessions. And they all kind of fit into this whole list. And the problem with having a list like this is depending upon how you feel and what the circumstances are, it is so easy to flip number one and number two, number one and number three, number two, number... It's just really easy to flip these around and we all of a sudden start realizing the results in our life are because guess who is no longer number one? So I would suggest, as I have in the past, that in fact, what our list should look like is the following slide. Everything else kind of fits into also ran. The reality is that the priority of our life, unless it's focused on God, everything else becomes askew. And when everything else becomes askew, then uh, marriage becomes an issue. And so if, in fact, our goal then is rather than just making our marriages look better, our goal is making God look better through our marriages, how do we do that? And I would suggest there's three ways we do that. Now, there are, um, when, as Vicki and I go through counseling sessions and, um, and we talk with people, I generally hear reasons why people are having marriage problems. They generally are these three. Um, communication breakdowns, conflict management, that's what Pastor Scott shared with us last week. Finances, of course, which leads to conflict, how we spend our money. Usually it's not because you have too much. Um, and time commitments, how I spend my time, um, whether or not I'm providing quality time. I've recently started hearing another one, which is a fourth one, we'll find the list, and that's these perceived control issues, and we'll talk about that. It's fairly new. I've only started hearing it in the last three to five years. Um, if we look at things like communication, we might say that uh, communication, this would be a good, good example of communication problems. I don't know if you can see that back there. It says, you say off with her head, but what I'm hearing is I feel neglected. Not being able to say, you know, hear the same things. Um, now, Vic and I have, uh, we were married at 19, and like Golda and Tevya, you know, we've been married for 25 years. Looking around, oh, God, what is this? God, you doesn't think I'm 44 years old anymore? Actually, in January, we celebrate 50 years. So, you know, we've been together for kind of a, a long time. And be because of that, <clears throat> um, we've experienced pretty much everything you can experience in marriage. Now, I come from a family of yellers. Scott talked about that last week as skunks. You know, in my family, whoever was loudest was right. That's just the way things are. Vicky comes from a family of, of sulkers, um, or as he would call them, turtles. You know, just if we just go to bed and, and sleep it off, I'm sure things would be better in the morning if we just kind of ignore it. I can't, we're not going to fight. And so you have somebody who really wants to fight and somebody who really doesn't want to fight and doesn't work out very well. And in fact, we have come up with a safe word, safe phrase in our marriage, which is, by the way, a whole separate issue we could talk about, how to, how to fight in fear and conflict. But when things get heated, Vicky will say to me, so because you're loudest, uh, that means you're right? And all of a sudden, that catchphrase, I all of a sudden realize what I'm doing again, and I settle down, and we can finally have some dialogue. Um, in our early marriage, we spent as much time as we could going to marriage retreats, and taking marriage seminars, and taking marriage classes, and reading marriage books, and Finally, it dawned on us after we'd been doing this for a year or two that, you know, one of these days we we're going to have to start doing this stuff and not just, you know, attending this stuff. 
Um, we've been doing this, as, I, as Scott said, for a lot of years now, about 42 years we've been um, actually conducting classes and doing some counseling, premarital and, and otherwise. And <clears throat> the reason I'm able, I feel like we're able to share uh, is because we have, we have being mostly me, but we have violated most of the principles in marriage. Um, and I've done them wrong. And I've learned from doing them wrong. And thankfully, as Vicki keeps reminding us, just keep showing up, we have stuck with it and showed up. And like the Orthodox Jews, Tevya and, and his wife, um, commitment became much more of an issue, much, or much more of, a, of, a, of, of something to, to value. But historically, we have taught uh, marriage classes um, in tips and techniques. If I just teach you these tips and techniques, you know, I've talked about a little about conflict resolution, um, you know, how men are different than women. So you read books like The Five Love Languages, you read, um, you read and or uh, attend seminars about love and respect, and women speaking with pink megaphones, guys speaking with, you know, blue megaphones. Um, maybe you uh, go through uh, some sort of a... Um, uh, of a uh, class that teaches you what your personality is like. You know, are you a driver? You know, are you phlegmatic? Are you sanguine? And so we've done all of those kinds of things. But what we've found that is, in the, and by the way, there's some good in all of that stuff, but what we've found is that's kind of a um, e equalizer in all of those is they tend to focus on having a good-looking good marriage. Um, or at least attempting to have a marriage that looks good from the outside. And wouldn't it be interesting if we, based on our priorities, instead of focusing on having a good marriage, we were focused on making God look good because of our marriage. Do you see the subtle difference there? There's a, there's a subtle difference between focusing on the problem as opposed to focusing on Father God who is the solution. Focusing on the problem versus focusing on Father God who is the solution. So I'd like us this morning to talk a little bit about identity, understanding, and action as three methods of drawing close to God and focusing on him in our marriage and he becomes the focus of our marriage. What do I mean by identity? So identity means we need to be secure in whom we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, we need to begin saying the things about us that he says about us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 has probably one of the linchpin scriptures of the entire Bible. Um, he who knew no sin became my sin that I might be called what? The righteousness of God. Now, you look in the mirror lately? <laughs> do you see some things there that are not necessarily so righteous? I know I do. But God sees something different. God sees me as the righteousness of God. Why? Because of the wonderful blood of Christ. So first, I need to be able to operate from this position of identity. Vic and I are doing a um, life group right now. We just started last week. Uh, we decided that it was important for us um, 
to begin mentoring young couples. And so we have a group, we have five couples that are coming to our house on Monday nights now, and we're going to be going through the book of 1 John because as I reread 1 John again with some of my brothers on Friday morning, I became um, once again captured by John's focus on identity. He makes a big point of making sure they understand who they are in Jesus. Certainly who Jesus is, identity, but then who they are in Jesus. So we need to somehow throw out the old, bring in the new, that we understand who we are and we become secure in God. And because of that security in God, we then can bring it to the problems we see in our marriage. In fact, I would ask the question, and I just asked this of a young man I met with the other day, is it possible that God is using the problems currently in your marriage to bring you back to himself? In other words, he's not using the problems in your marriage to be identified so that somehow your marriage can get better. That'll be a byproduct. He's bringing the problems in your marriage up to the surface so that you can learn where you have lost your focus and changed your priority list, where you've lost your focus on him. And because of that, all kinds of things become rampant in your life. We have that available to us. Um, in fact, it says that our identity is as a slave, but our identity is a slave to righteousness. In the book of Romans, Paul says that. And this has a whole bunch of ramifications to it. I do whatever I'm a slave to. If I'm a slave to sin, guess what happens? If I'm a slave to righteousness, that means that I begin to hate things like lust. I begin to hate things like pride. In fact, I begin to hate things like hate. When I become a slave to righteousness, it's not that I want to do better. I have to do better. I have to follow the paths of righteousness because I'm a slave. I'm a slave to righteousness. Jesus um, understood that. So he's ready to go back to home. <laughs> he's been walking the earth for 33 years and he's with his disciples the night he's betrayed right before then, probably during the Last Supper or maybe when they're walking on their way to Gethsemane. And he's giving them his last thoughts, things that will hopefully get them through. And he says, I've got to go, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave the, I'm going to leave the Holy Spirit with you. Holy Spirit's going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. The Spirit of God, in fact, um, being in us, then becomes the power that will be obvious in our marriage. So without this focus on God, we don't receive that Holy Spirit. Without that Holy Spirit, we don't have that power that then transforms our marriage. In fact, what God's desire is in him being glorified in our relationships together as husband and wife is that our marriages begin to tell a story to the rest of the world, that there's a Savior, and this Savior is so full of love and is so full of desire to rescue and to save. And, you know, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul does his big thing, verses 22 and on, about marriage, um, people will look at that and they'll, you know, want to talk about, you know, wives being submitted to their husbands, husbands love your wife, as Christ love the church. Those are all good stuff, by the way. But Paul finishes up by, he, he says this thing. He says, I am talking about a mystery because I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? What are you saying, Paul? He's saying, 
God is intent upon you having a marriage that is glorifying him for a reason. And that reason is you're going to show, well, you're either going to confirm to the world and show what Christ's relationship is with the church, or you're go- you and I will confuse the world as to what Christ's relationship is with the church. That's not something I want to do. There's much more at stake in my marriage than just my marriage. So the first thing I need to do is have identity. I need to know I am who I am. Secondly, I need to have understanding. Now by that, I mean that, you know, Paul says in Corinthians, he says, um, take every thought captive, he says, um, take every thought captive that's in opposition to God so that you can be obedient to Christ. Okay, so why is he saying that? I, I, <laughs> I share this with guys all the time. I say, why do you think that we're told to do things? Well, the reason we're told to do things is because it's possible to not do them. <laughs> the reason we're told to abstain from certain things is because it's possible to partake of them. He wouldn't give us those kinds of admonitions if the op- opportunities didn't exist. And so when he tells me to take every thought captive, I understand that that's because there are thoughts coming to me that are anything but God's will. Now, what do I mean by that? We've, we're all tempted to follow our feelings, aren't we? I feel this way. Don't feel like doing this. I, I mean, we, we say that all the time. It becomes part of our actual vernacular. How I feel pretty much determines on what I will do. And I would suggest that, in fact, we, don't, we can't trust our feelings. Now, I'm not saying, you notice I didn't say we're to deny our feelings. That's not healthy. Feelings neither are right nor wrong, they just are. Where it becomes a problem is where you allow feelings to decide for you your next move. And where feelings become um, the rationale for whether or not you believe something. And what I've learned is, and you've learned I'm sure, is that feelings neither right nor wrong, but they're generally not very accurate. They're not an accurate reflection of what God is currently telling me right now. What is an accurate reflection of what God is currently telling me right now? I would hold up my, uh, my tablet, but then you'd think it was Samsung is really doing it. It's not Samsung. It's the Word of God is doing it. God's words that he gives us differentiate. They're what expel and allow me to take captive my thoughts. And so I need to know, obviously, I need to know his, his words need to know what he has to say. We need the word because, as Paul says, the word washes my mind. Interesting, in that same context when he talks about marriage, Paul's talking about that we as husbands have an opportunity with the word of God to keep our wives pure and clean in washing them. But it it fits for all of us. The word of God literally allows me to transform my mind, to wash my mind. And so... I use the Word of God as my differentiator. Now, I said that there was a fourth um, reason for marriage problems that I've been seeing that people, and I started seeing it about three, like I say, three to five years ago, maybe three, um, generally was coming out of the mouths of women. And it was generally coming out of their mouths as if it was a unique idea that they had just thought up. And the words were these. I'm just so tired of being controlled. I'm so tired of being controlled. They may, may voice it like this, I just haven't laughed for so long. Or you may have something like, um, 
well, it's only fair that I should have blank. Or, I'm certainly not going to be submitted to that man, or maybe a woman, um, men speaking that to me. Now, these are real emotions, and I would not say you deny emotions. They are real emotions that come up because you've been hurt. The reason you say, I'm tired of being in control, is because you feel control. The reason you say, I no longer laugh anymore, is because you haven't laughed very long. So they're real. They're real emotions. But we need to, again, compare them to what God says, who brings us back into real understanding of how I walk through this life in a successful manner. So Galatians 2.20 and Colossians 3, 1 through 3. I'm not a big fan of uh, tattoos, but if I were, I'd probably have this arm tattooed with uh, Galatians 2.20 and this one with Colossians 3, 1 through 3. In fact, I learned a song about it years ago. I won't bore you by singing. But it describes identity, and then it describes what to do after the identity. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, like right now, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's identity. Based upon that, I get to move on in life. Therefore, this is the action, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Okay, if I'm seeking the things above, then how much is being controlled fitting into that? Therefore, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things upon this earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. How about the next one? 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and 4. Now, 1 Corinthians the third, third verse of the seventh chapter, husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. All the men just perked up. I can just see it in all your eyes. All the guys out there in TV land, all of a sudden they're paying attention, right? The next verse, however, I believe means a whole lot more than just that physical sexual attraction or sexual um, process that we're talking about. He says, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Does that sound like control? And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Does that sound like control? So when I hear a lie from the enemy that says, I'm so tired of being controlled, I need to go back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? The Word of God says, because we are now one, remember, I got to leave my father and my mother, the two became one, that because we are now one, I get to delight in being controlled. I get delight in the fact that my wife and I are one, and I get to, I, I want to do the things that she wants. She wants to do the things I want. I don't feel like she's controlling me. I'm looking forward to her telling me what she wants so that I can do the things she wants, and vice versa. That's a scriptural basis for relationship. He, if, this is not just an exclusive couple of verses. Paul completes that same thought in, in, in Ephesians again. Now, just before he launches into this whole thing about marriage, you know, wives being submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, Christ love the church. Interesting, the verse right before that that actually introduces the whole thought, he said, submit to one another. 
out of reverence for Christ. I'm submitted to my wife. Now, there is certainly a whole lot of teaching we can do about how God has ordered the home and husbands and their authority as priests of the home and all of that. But the reality is, as we've learned, that if I want to be the priest in the house, what that means is I get to be the chief servant at the house. So the reality is I get to be submitted to my wife just like she gets to be submitted to me. And then Ephesians, right before that, in the previous portion of the letter, he actually starts describing what that looks like. He says that I need to value, and put your wife's name in there, I need to value others above myself, not looking to my own interests, but rather to her own interests or his own interests, that that's a Christian way to walk if I'm glorifying God. So in other words, do you see the difference between these tips and techniques we would learn on how to walk through our marriage versus being focused on God? And because we're focused on God, we allow that spirit of God to come through us and begin to work out in our lives these principles that give him glory. And through giving him glory, our marriages get better. Duh, big red truck. Romans 12, 10, honor one another above yourselves. And then this is the one that really got to us when Vic and I started doing this series from Francis Chan. A lot of this comes from he and his wife Lisa's most recent book, um, You and Me Forever. And I've read the scripture a bazillion times out of the, out of, uh, Uh, James, but I read it differently when it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what that says to me is this. Of course, giving grace to the humble is the great idea. We love that. But what it says is, um, what I may look like is being more interested in being right than being humble. Well, maybe I can live with that until I realize the rest of that scripture. By being right, what I'm really choosing to do is be an enemy of God. That makes me shake in my boots. (laughs) That brings sobriety on my life. Next time uh, you're in an argument with your wife, your things are starting to get heated up, draw aside and say, Lord, remind me of this scripture. You oppose the proud. You stand against the proud. I am on the other side of the battle lines from God when I choose to be proud. I mean, if I am taking that against the handmaiden of God, (laughs) that becomes a problem. If she's doing it as the choice select priest of God, that becomes a problem for her. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Well, so we've first got identity, then we've got um, understanding. We've got to be able to combat the things that are coming at us all the time. And, and I, the reason I say this is because, guys, I listen to married couples and they come to me with, these, with the, what they think are rational ideas that support their rights, and they are not in any way in line with the selfless lifestyle that the Word of God teaches. They just aren't. So we need to have identity, understanding, and then we need to put it into action. And we have found something that really has been effective on putting things into action, and that is having a missional marriage. What do I mean by that? Well, God has called us all to not only be his disciples, followers of Jesus, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you and I have been called to make disciples. We're called to have an impact on the world. 
that people learn who Jesus is and also become Jesus followers. We, each of us, have this responsibility individually. Now, you know, not all of you are pastor teachers, not all of you are going to be evangelists, not all of you are going to, you know, be prophets. But when you go through the list of the gifts to the church, it includes things like givers of mercy and people who are discerners of spirits and people who are live, given the gift of generosity and those who are given gifts of leadership. And there's lots of places to fit into the body of Christ so that, in fact, uh, you begin working out God's call for you to make disciples. But mission, missional attitudes um, um, breed unity in relationship. And what I mean by that is, what has God called you to individually as mission in your life? And what has God called the two of you as husband and wife missionally in your life? Now, uh, five years ago, Vic and I were in San Diego at a church we go to in the wintertime, um, wonderful church down there that's an offshoot of a church that actually Scott knows the pastor. And uh, she came back and God had spoken to her and she had a vision for um, doing something with people in villages around the world that ended up, for our focus, was Guatemala. She wanted to go to Guatemala, and I had no desire to go to Guatemala. <laughs> I am not an evangelist. I love to talk about the Word of God. I love to tell people about Jesus, but I am not an evangelist. I am someone who I believe God has given a gift of teaching that I love to lift the body of Christ up and lift him up to a higher level of focus. That's my gift. It's not to go out and preach the Word in street corners. And uh, Vicky's lived her life of evangelism throughout her life, through workplaces and other places, and she saw this as another opportunity to go out and love on people and love on them for Jesus Christ. I chose to go to Guatemala because in our missional marriage, I saw an opportunity for me to be supportive of her and glorify God. Because he's called me into relationship with her to glorify him. And I saw this as just another opportunity for me to minister to her and to glorify him. Now, of course, I went to Guatemala, uh, got big, bit by the love bug, and uh, fell in love with the people of Guatemala, which, of course, is part of, my, uh, part of my ministry. And so, I mean, right now, we've been there four times, and I, I was looking at the pictures of our little girls, and I couldn't, I just, I'm so sad that we're not there with them today, loving on them in Guatemala. But that's a missional marriage. Now, we saw this take place. We are actually teaching a marriage class, and we had a young couple in the marriage class with us, and we got to that por portion of the teaching about missional marriages, and they came up to us and said, tell us about Guatemala. We both speak fluent Spanish. And so they came with us, and it has revolutionized their marriage. Why? Because now, all of a sudden, their focus is on the calling of God outside of their marriage, and their marriage improvement is a byproduct of them following after God. Rather than focusing on internal and just focusing on my internal issues in my marriage, they began to focus on the needs of others out and how could they as a couple begin to bless the world around them. And all of a sudden, the things that they were fighting about became really dull in comparison to bringing water to people who are thirsty to bringing feed for people, food to people who are hungry, to clothing those who are naked, to visiting those who are in prison. Does it sound like anybody you know that wanted that to happen? Jesus, maybe? All of a sudden, my focus changes as a couple and the internal issues in my life begin to fade away. 
identity, understanding, and actions. I'd like us to finish up with a video. And uh, this is an example of what can be done um, as you allow God to change your focus and he becomes the prime focus for your marriage. A big wedding and invite all of our neighbors. We live in a neighborhood of 400 by 400 yards and in that area are four 25-story high-rise buildings. And in those buildings are 4,000 people. As we kept talking, we realized a lot of our neighbors don't have cars. A lot of our neighbors would never step foot in a church building. And, um, and realistically, the only way they could come to our wedding is if the wedding came to them. We were driving home from church and we had just heard a great sermon on the book of James. And then on the ride home, Sharon said, we ought to really do something that matters. And I thought she was going to suggest we work at a soup kitchen or maybe do something on Saturday afternoons to help people. And instead, she introduced the idea of adoption. We saw a picture in a newsletter of George. The ad said that he was healthy, but was born with no arms and desperately needed a loving home. And I really felt that God was speaking to me and saying, I want you to adopt this boy. I have a plan for this boy to be in your family. And I was actually afraid to even mention it to Mike because it was such a departure from anything we'd ever done. When I was in control, I drank everything away. I drank away my marriage, I drank away my children, I drank away my relationships. My life basically caved in and crashed in around me. Our marriage was at a bad place. I knew that I couldn't move forward with the way things were going. And I made a decision to file for divorce. Should we go out there or out here? Let's go out here because we're going to show you the wedding site and everything. Folks don't normally have a wedding next to something like this. And it isn't always this bad, but as you can see, there's a bit of garbage strewn around today. But it really worked out well on our wedding day. This is where we said I do. And uh, we had all of the chairs right here and our neighbors, and you can see the buildings. And uh, the whole neighborhood could hear our wedding. And a lot of people came down and joined the party when they heard uh, songs and prayers in their languages. Because we wanted to include as many people as we could in our wedding, we actually ended up deciding to have two wedding ceremonies and two three-hour receptions in one day. I think as we make our major life decisions about who we'll marry, what our career will be, where we'll live, how we'll spend our time, I think we all have defaults in our life that kind of dictate or guide us in these decisions. As we were planning our wedding, there's so many cultural defaults that may not necessarily be bad or good, but they just are handed to us. And I really felt God speak to me to challenge how I would do our wedding and how we would live our lives, that our new defaults would be what would glorify God most. To paraphrase 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Christ who is rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, could become rich.
and as Jesse and I were getting married, we wanted our lives to reflect this verse, to intentionally become poor in some way by moving into a high-needs neighborhood, and it has certainly enriched our lives. Before we got married, people told us that we should maybe not live in our neighborhood for our first year of marriage, that we should take it easy and really build into our marriage. And we really felt strongly that we should stay in our neighborhood and that we should start our marriage by serving God together, because that's what we wanted our whole lives to look like. There's something powerful about seeking first God's kingdom with your spouse that makes your love go deeper and stronger than if you were just seeking first your marriage. There you go. We got George home and things started to go fairly well and he got healthy and happy. And I thought, okay, we've done our deal. This is uh, our grand contribution to the kingdom. God should be very happy with us now. And um, I went by the computer one night and Sharon was sitting there looking at the internet and she had found James and it said, boy born in India with no arms. And Sharon had the idea, why don't we make them brothers? Wouldn't that be amazing? And serving God really takes a lot of submission and it takes a lot of sort of rep repetitious, unglamorous kind of work. I think people can look at our family and see 12 vivacious kids and think, wow, this you know what a beautiful thing but that involved years and years of doing the same thing over and over again and you have to be willing to kind of make yourself nothing sometime and then he blesses those efforts and in the end he makes it into something beautiful with Sharon and I I think it's that we actually don't focus on our marriage that makes it a great one and Satan sometimes whispers in your ear when you're tired or alone or three in the morning and says, your friends are going to Jamaica next week. And they're just going to sit on the beach and stare into each other's eyes. And you don't ever get to do stuff like that. Ha <laughs> ha. And you're like, what have I done to myself? And then you have other moments where you go right to the tip of the mountain and you realize it's going to have uh, effects for eternity. I think this adoptive mission we're on has been the best thing for our marriage because I see people that have been married as long as us struggling to find common ground and find common interests and, and stay interested in each other. And I feel like we have this big God adventure that we're on together and, and that's the most romantic thing you could be doing. There's 140 million orphans around the world and like how can we just use our marriage to just ignore that whole worldwide problem. I don't know how you're going to face God at the end and say, oh, we, we, you put us together and you found us and you made us and what we decided to do with our marriage was get comfortable.
the day that Susan threw me out of the house was a day that literally saved my life. And what transpired from that night was a series of events that only God could orchestrate. When I was working, there were Christian people around me, and they seemed like they had good relationships with their families, and that was really what I wanted. My wife started taking our kids to a church, and I'm thinking she's sending them to a cult, and so I decided I'm going to go visit church with them. That morning, God got my attention in a really big way, and I ended up giving my life to Christ. God restored my marriage. My ex-wife and I were remarried. We became best friends, but something important changed. Our marriage wasn't just about each other and our children and our home and our dreams, but it also included helping other people in any way that we could. That's where our heart for missions really started, and that's how Crisis Aid was born. Right now we're in East Africa. This is little Thomas Kenny. He's four years old, and as you can see, he's severely malnourished. Crisis Aid is now building a children's clinic in an area that has no doctor. We're starting another building program for girls who are victims of sex trafficking. As well as looking at the United States, our inner city work, we want to expand that significantly. We are headed to the center. Our mission is really to reach the lost. Uh, we provide packages of food that include uh, groceries, canned goods, meat vegetables and bread, just depending on what's available. I love standing back in a corner and watching her. She glows. Just to see the life of God come out of her, and you can see it in her face and her expression, and even if she limps with her cane, there's a difference, you know? She's more beautiful to me today than the day we got married, the second time. Have we been living our own life and, you know, trying to build the good life for ourselves? We wouldn't have that experience. We would be missing that. We know that restoration is possible. And it's exciting to see what God's going to do and how he's going to use it after all of these years. You know, because, it's, you know, it's been a while now. <laughs> Well, I've never been busier in my entire life, and I'm supposed to be retired. We don't see any reason to slow down, I mean. But you know, when you're on a mission, when God puts this thing in your heart and you really find it, it's not work. I mean, it's a privilege. If married people want to know how to be missional, there's about 3,000 verses in the Bible that deal with poverty and injustice. Pick one and build your life around it, and you'll be in the center of God's will. I think a common way that people view relationships in marriage is finding someone that you can spend time with, that you can do fun things with, you can have a family, you can buy a home. I just felt like marriage could have a much stronger, more powerful, more significant meaning than just someone who I could grow old with. I think one thing about marriage is that it doubles what you individually desire. If you individually desire to settle down, then you'll doubly settle down. But if you individually desire to be on mission, then you'll doubly be able to do that. And seeking first the kingdom, doing hard things, even suffering. God is pleased with a marriage that doesn't dwell and consume itself and get caught up in its own roots and vines, but is seeking to 
reach out to the world around it and have an actual lasting impact for his kingdom. I'm going to invite you to stand. I really believe the Lord has spoken to us in a lot of different ways this morning. Some of us are single. Some of us are married. If you're watching online, of course, uh, the Lord has spoken in a variety of different ways. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. We're going to finish with a song. And I know that uh, for many of you, this is kind of past your time limit this morning or whatever else. And you're certainly welcome to, to uh, uh, leave when you'd like to. Uh, but Jesus here this morning, uh, as we prepare to conclude... Lord, I feel like it's important for us to dedicate ourselves to you in a fresh way. There's uh, just been enough truth about being called into relationship with you and the focus being on you and knowing you and loving you and then serving one another and then serving the world through our marriage and through our relationships. Lord, we just want to offer ourselves to you again this morning. We invite you to come take our hearts captive. Lord, with you, with the power of your word, with the power of your love, take our lives captive, Lord, for the sake of your kingdom, glory and honor. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for one another. For us who are single here this morning, thank you that this season of our life is single. Lord, may we live it for you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. For those of us who are married, Lord, would you help us live it for you as we love our wife, as we love our husband, as we love our neighbors, as we serve the body of Christ and serve one another in the community. Lord, it's so refreshing to watch something that glorifies you rather than what we see in the media every day. Jesus, thank you for the privilege of being of another kingdom, following another God, serving a different glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Could we all say amen together?